0: Hi, and welcome to True Crime Sweden. I'm your host, Pernilla. This is the second part of the episode about Tess, Therese Johansson-Råkål, who was killed when she was only 15 years old. If you haven't listened to the first part, go back and listen to that one first. We're now going to continue where we left off in part 1. Julie was on her way to Paris for the weekend with her family, and she gave John an ultimatum that Tess was going to be dead by the time that she got home, or else they were finished. She also told him that he could not leave his house that weekend except for when he did the killing. She sends him a text at 3.15 p.m. that Friday that says, I hope you are home. This is so hard on me because it feels like you're doing everything that you're that you're not supposed to do. I cannot trust you. You know what you're supposed to do this weekend. Keep sending texts. I will see them when I get back home. Answer this text now. He sends her text after a few hours. Hi honey, I'm at home. I've been tanning and now I'm gonna watch Smallville. I'm gonna study tonight uh, and all through the weekend. I'm only going out when I'm doing you-know-what. I promise that I'm not going to do anything stupid. Even if that doesn't mean anything to you, I mean it and that means something to me. Three hours later he sends, Hello, beautiful. I just finished dinner. Me and my dad are gonna look for a trip to book for this summer, so that I can be away at the same time that you are going to the States. I miss you. Kisses. And two hours later, I'm home tonight, as you know, watching TV with my parents. My dad and I are going to Barcelona when you are in the States. And after another two hours. I'm going to bed now. Tomorrow I'm going to watch my little sister's soccer game and catch some sun and study. I hope you have a great time in Paris. And tomorrow you guys are going to Euro Disney. I hope you have a great time there. Sweet dreams. I miss you so much. Kisses. The next day, at about 1.45 p.m., he texts her again. Hi, honey. I'm sitting outside in the sun right now. We have the best weather ever. I've been working on my English paper on 9-11, and it's finally done. I might play some tennis with my dad later. It's so nice to just hang around the house and chillin. I need this so bad. I've been so tired and I can't wait until the summer break is here. I hope you have a great time at Euro Disney. I miss you. Kisses. Three hours later, he texts her again. Hi, I'm going to cook some dinner now. Been in the sun all day and I've got a nice tan. Okay, I'm a little burned too, but anyway. I want you to come home. I love you. All these texts that he is sending is because this is what she told him to do before she left, remember? You might be surprised when you hear her answer to him. It comes in about two and a half hours after his last text. Oh my god, you're sending a lot of texts. All the time. Really? You make me so tired. You're not at home, and you haven't been all weekend. Who are you doing this time, I wonder? She is really screwing with his mind at this time. He sends some more texts during that night. In those texts he tells her again and again that he has been home all weekend, that she can even ask his dad if he doesn't if she doesn't believe him. He finishes the last text with I love you most of all forever. The next day, on Sunday, May 31st, he texts her every two hours, just telling her that he's home and what he's doing. She doesn't reply at all. At 9.30 p.m., that Sunday night, he sends the following text to her. Julie, I can't take this anymore. I cannot take the pressure that it has to be done by the time you get home. I want to do it so fucking bad. But I'm not sure if I'm able to do it. I've tried to get my friends to go to Juandal with me. Side note here. This is a place close to where Tess lives, and that's probably why he tried to get his friends to go with him. Text continues like this. Uh, I tried to f- get my friends to go to Chandal, but nobody wanted to go. I want to show you so bad that I love you more than anything, but I don't know if I can do this. Please, let me show you in another way how much you mean to me. Two hours later, she replies. Have you done it yet? He answers back right away. I haven't been able to. I'll try tomorrow morning, and if it doesn't work, I'll do it after school. I'll follow her or something. Please don't be mad at me because I haven't done it yet. She answers. I'm going to be mad if you haven't done it by the time I get home. But it wouldn't surprise me if you haven't done it. You never keep what you have promised. They text a little more back and forth that night. And he sends her a long text at one thirty am In which he tells her how much he loves her. And that she is the most important person to him. He also says that she is the one who can push his limits and that his love for her is without limits. The next day, they don't talk or text until she sends him a text at 3.40pm. Why are you not texting me as you promised? Have you done you-know-what yet? And seven minutes later she writes, Why aren't you answering? You fucking creep. You can't be trusted. I hate you. You are probably fucking her right now. Just die. And about 20 minutes later, at 4.08pm, she writes, I don't understand what you're thinking when you say that you want to make everything better, and then you do this. It's over now. Just wanted you to know that. Forget all about me. Twelve minutes later, she gets a reply that probably made her panic a bit. It says, John forgot his phone at my house. Best regards, Peter. About an hour later, at 6pm, she texts back, Make sure that he picks it up then. During the investigation, Peter tells the police that he looked through the text between them. He wrote down a few of them on a piece of paper. Remember, this is in 2009, and they were using Nokias. He wrote down the text about the vodka, and that he was going to do it when she bent down. He also showed these texts to another friend, but they never figured out what the texts were all about. At about 8 p.m. that night, John texts her. Did you call me? And he also adds a little heart. Twenty minutes later, he texts, ''Where are you? Are you back in Sweden yet?'' She then replies, ''What do you want? Haven't you read my texts?'' And he replies, ''No.'' She then says, ''Yes, you have.'' ''Or maybe Peter opened them?'' He replies, ''How did you know about that?'' She says, ''Because he texted me. You think you can get away with everything?'' But I'm not stupid. If you read the text, you will know that it's over. He replies. I saw them now. He didn't tell me that I received texts. And what do you mean that I got away with? She doesn't reply, and he continues. Where are you? Are you home yet? Can you answer me? Getting away with what? He continues. Why don't you answer me? I thought I could trust you. She then answers. As you can see in the previous text, we're over. He answers. Come on, get real. All that I have done for you lately. She answers. It doesn't matter. Because you haven't done, you know what. And I'm going to be home in two hours. You promised me and you let me down. And this was the last time. And she continues. Now you're pretty owned. I'm not going to text you anymore. I've already spent too much money on texting you. And then she adds, Oh, one more thing. You don't have to go and hook up with another girl now that we're over, okay? It's going to be so much work for you later then. Thanks. The last text, the police later thinks that she was pointing to that he would have to have another girl to kill if he went out and fooled around with someone else. I don't know if that's what she really means. She claims it isn't. To all these texts, John just answers, okay. But about half an hour later, he texts her again, this time saying, Please, Julie, can't I show you how much you mean to me in, no- in another way? Or just give me some time. I can still do it. I just couldn't do it this weekend. Couldn't you give me the same chance? No matter when I do it. And this time, it's close to midnight on Monday, June 1st, when Julie replies. How can you be so stupid? You promised me that you would do it this weekend, and once again, you let me down. You are obviously not able to do this, so I guess I have to do it myself. I can't take being let down one more time. That's why it's over. Plus... This is not the only thing that you have done this weekend. He replies. But Julie, I can do it. If you just give me some more time. Then I will do it when there is an opportunity. Julie replies. That time I saw her on the subway last Thursday. You promised me that that would be the last time I had to see her. If that's not the case, we're over. And you have let me down once again. And I guess that's the way it's going to be, because you obviously cannot do this. John says, I can do it. It was only the pressure that it had to be done during this weekend that became too much for me. I promised to do it before the prom. Please don't take this chance away from me. She replies, You cannot do it. You have proven that to me now. I was stupid enough to believe that you could. And what do you mean before the prom? Before I came home, it was this weekend, and before that, it was another day. I can never trust that you will do it before the prom. I can never, 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 ever trust you again, and I don't understand how you can be so stupid that you would believe that. You promised, and you let me down, once again. I'm not going to take that anymore. He then answers, Okay, but I guess you're going to notice when she's gone. I don't think that you believe me. But I cannot not do it, because I cannot live without you. It wouldn't be possible. It could work. You would be able to trust me again, but you don't even want to give me a chance. Can we at least be friends until I've done it? And she answers. Until you've done it, we're nothing. He says, not even friends? And she says, friends don't let you down. He says, I'm not going to let you down. How the hell am I going to prove it to you otherwise? She replies, you are so fucking stupid. It's hard to believe. I feel sorry for you. You are so fucking useless. The conversation you just heard took place during the evening of June 1st. And about an hour past midnight. The next couple of days are just regular texts. They are being friendly sometimes and bashing each other other times. The prom, that was the new deadline for the murder, was taking place on Tuesday, June 9th. On Friday, June 5th, John is texting Julie several times that he really needs to speak to her. She is ignoring him throughout the day. Around 6 p.m. on the 5th, he texts her, You can choose between two things. You can either talk to me and be nice, then this is going to be easier to do, and it will be done much faster. Or you can keep ignoring me, and it's going to take much longer. I want to get it over with as as, as soon as possible. Please answer me. They then talk on the phone, and he again goes out to the neighborhood where Tess lives and tries to find her. He stays there for about four and a half hour, but she doesn't show up. During these hours, he talks to Julie 13 times. He arrives home at about 1 a.m. The next day, they keep having contact, mostly through calls and not texts. He does text her that night at about 7.15pm, and this is what he says. I'm on my way now, if you wondered. I'm watching the game over at Jess's. if my mother would ask. She seemed a little suspicious when I left. If she is there, I'm gonna do it tonight. Otherwise, I'll find out where she is. Talk to you later. Kisses. The place that he is talking about is an old hill, where there used to be a ski-jumping arena. It's been closed since many years, but the kids have like a hangout spot there, on the top of the hill. They call it Hoppabacken, if you translate it, it's like jumping hill, or something like that. So at this point, he has been out to Tess's neighborhood twice with the sole purpose of ending her life. She, at this point, is totally unaware of what's going on. During the last day of her life, Tess had slept until about noon, and then she had cleaned her room, because the family were expecting a guest from the U.S. She later said to her parents that she was going to hang with some friends and that they might go to a party. The party... Or, I don't know if you really can call it a party, more like a gathering of teenagers. This took place on this Hoppabacken, on top of that hill. There were about 30 to 40 people there. Some were drinking and some were not. No one was doing drugs. They just talked and sat in small groups talking and laughing and just being teenagers, I guess. Most of them knew each other from school but there were a few new faces, as well. Tess was there with her friends Ina, Jennifer and Felicia. She was drinking and she was really happy and running around talking to everyone. At this gathering was also John and a bunch of his friends. At one point, at about 10pm, Tess and her friend Ina went into the wooded area that was surrounding them to use the bathroom. John also went into the woods, and then he bumped into Tess. Ina had already gone back to the others. He asked Tess if Ina knew that she had stayed there to talk to him, and she said yes. He said to her that the reason that he asked that was that he didn't want anyone to see them together because of the rumors, and he didn't want Julie to find out that he had talked to her. I think the truth was more like, okay, someone knows that you're with me now, then I can't kill you right now. He tells Tess that he wants to speak more with her later, but that he doesn't want her to tell anyone that she's going to speak to him. She agrees to this. And for goodness sake, who wouldn't? Two kids, they kissed before. He wants to talk about it, of course she's going to agree to that. Gordon also came with two of his friends, but they had watched the game at home before they joined the party. And about twenty minutes after Gordon arrived, Julie makes an entrance. She comes with her friend Olivia, a friend of hers whose house she was going to spend the night at. What we don't know then, but learn later, is that Julie and Olivia had also been at Gordon's house watching the game. Julie had started seeing Gordon at this time, but they kept it really quiet so that John wouldn't find out. Julie and Olivia waited 20 minutes after the subway arrived before they started walking up the hill, this only not to arrive at the same time as Gordon and his friends. The text between John and Julie shows that she's still trying to string him along, but at the same time she started seeing Gordon She's planning a murder with one guy, and making out with another. Well, anyway, when she arrives to the hill, she and John walked away a little bit, so that they could talk in private. Of course, we don't know what was said at this time, but John claims that they talked about the murder. And Julie say that they didn't talk about anything special. This talk lasted somewhere between 10 to 15 minutes. It's now about 11.30 p.m. Saturday night, June 6th. (music) Julie and her friend Olivia then leaves. They had to be home by midnight. Several people leave the party, and now it's only about 10 to 15 people left. At about 11:40, 1140, 11:45 p.m., John and Tess looks at each other, and he nods his head in the direction of the woods. And she gets up and says that she needs to pee again. He also goes to the woods, but he's not going in to the woods in the same place as her. Ina tells Tess before she leaves that she must hurry up because Ina's mom just called, and she's waiting beneath the hill to take the girls home. When Tess doesn't come back after a few minutes, Ina texts her to hurry up. Tess replies at 11.47 that she will be out in a minute. This is the last anyone ever heard from Tess. Ina's phone battery died after that text, and she started to call out for Tess, but she didn't get a reply. Some of the other friends also tried to call Tess, but no one got an answer. At about a quarter past twelve, Ina decides to leave. She thinks that Tess must have left the other way, through the woods. And Ina's mum had been waiting for about forty minutes at this point, probably not too happy about that. After Ina leaves, the other friends keep calling out for Tess. Gordon, who was dating Tess not so long ago, calls her home and asks her mother if she had returned home. Her mother gets scared and jumps in the car and takes Tess's older brother Tim with her. He knows the area well. The people who are still there start spreading out to look for Tess. They walk two and two and keeps calling out for her. What also should be noted is that Tess's bag was still lying where she left it next to some friends. So they really didn't think that she went home without it. She had been drinking, but she was not super drunk, according to her friends. But they were still worried that she might have hurt herself in the woods, and wasn't able to get back by herself. One of Tess's friends called the police at about 20 minutes past 12, and tells them that she is missing. I don't know if the police took this so serious. A drunk person who is calling and saying that they cannot find another drunk person... Gordon calls Tess's mother again at about 10 minutes before 1am, and just as she picks up, he hears one of his friends calling out that they found her. He panics and hangs up the phone. Remember, these kids are 15 and 16 years old. They have been drinking, and as any normal teen, you want to hide that from the grown-ups as long as possible. When they found her, she was on her back. She's unconscious. She is bleeding from the mouth and nose. They say that they found a weak pulse at first, but they're not really sure about this. At five minutes to one, they call 112, this is like Sweden's 911 number, and request paramedics. And at this time, the parents of two boys who were attending the party, and lived really close by, have arrived. They start CPR. When the paramedics arrive at the scene, they are met by one of the teenagers who show them how to find the place where Tess is. Remember, this is in the middle of a wooded area, so one of the kids ran down to meet the paramedics so that they would find the way. The teenagers and the two parents who are on the scene move away when the paramedics start working on Tess. They stand about 50 to 100 yards away, and then Tess's mother and brother arrives. They are not allowed to come up to her, and they are taken to the hospital at the same time as Tess, but with another ambulance. The paramedics later tells their story. They got this call, and the info was that it was a young girl who had been drinking, and she had been missing for about an hour. She was now found unconscious and bleeding from the mouth. They talked in the ambulance on the way over there and decided not to bring a stretcher up into the woods, but instead get the girl to walk between them on the way back to the ambulance. This usually helps a person to sober up a bit. The female paramedic realizes when she gets to Tess that she is not only unconscious, she is already dead. She has no pulse. She is non-responsive. But this is a kid. You have to do everything, she says. So they keep doing CPR. They intubate her on the scene. But they are not able to get an IV in her, even though they try several times. When they are working on her, they notice that she has some red-bluish marks on her throat. And they also see red lines in her eyes. They then realize that this might have been an attack. They take her to the hospital and they continue to try to bring her back all the way there. But about 10 minutes after arriving to the hospital, Tess is pronounced dead. After Tess is pronounced dead at the hospital, the hospital staff makes sure that they don't do anything more with her body, not to ruin any evidence. Police comes to the hospital to collect any loose items and also take the sheet that she was lying on. When she was found, her clothes were untouched. She was still wearing her jeans, her shirt and a leather jacket. So, they didn't think that this was an attempted rape that went wrong. The police get to work immediately, and the ten teenagers who were still at the scene when she was discovered are taken to the police for questioning. Their parents are called in, and they are present during the questioning. In Sweden, the police cannot question a minor without the parents being present, or at least that the parents have been asked to be present and the kid says that it's okay anyway. When researching this case, I've read all the transcripts from the police and also all the transcripts from the court. And almost all of the kids that were present that night brings up John and Julie and the kiss between John and Tess that caused such problems in John and Julie's relationship. The questioning of the kids are being done in the morning hours of June 7th between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. At about 6 a.m. the police know enough that they can go out to John's home and bring him in. They also go to Julie's home to bring her in. But remember, Julie was staying the night at a friend's house, Olivia. So after confronting Julia's parents, they go over to Olivia's house and picks up Julie from there. Can you imagine that your kid has a friend's stay the night, and then at 6am on Sunday morning, the police are knocking on your door to pick that friend up? That must have been such a shock. Let's start with John and his investigation. The police conduct a 24-8 questioning. This is like a first short questioning in which the defendant is informed of what he or she is suspected of. The reason it's called a 24-8 questioning is because it's stated in the rules of the court in chapter 24 and paragraph 8. So the police always call it a 24-8 questioning. In this first questioning, a person from social services is also present. This is mandatory when a minor is suspected of a crime. And John's mother is also present. He is informed that he is considered a suspect in the homicide of Tess. He denies that he had anything to do with it, and he tells the police that he hardly knows her, but that he talked to her for about five minutes that night. The conversation they had was about the kiss that took place a few weeks prior. That same night, they questioned him again, this time with his lawyer present. He keeps denying that he had anything to do with this. He answers the question that the police ask him, and he claims that he left the party at about five or ten minutes before midnight, and that he arrived home at about five or ten minutes past midnight. Nothing really important comes out of this questioning, but the police inform him that they have evidence that points to him, but they don't go into what kind of evidence. This must really have gotten him scared, because the next day he asks that the priest that he was confirmed by the weekend before comes in, and after talking to the priest for a few hours... He asks the detectives for another questioning. He has something he wants to tell them. At this questioning, his lawyer is not present, but John says he doesn't want him to be. The priest is sitting next to him, and attending is also a woman from social services. He tells them everything. He tells them about how he and Julie talked about this for weeks. How he went out to Tess's neighborhood a couple of times. He tells them about the vodka bottle and what happened with that plan. He tells them about how much Julie means to him and that he feels like he has now woken up from a trance or something and that he finally have realized what he actually did do. He tells them that he felt an overwhelming pressure from Julie to do this and that he tried to ask her for other ways to prove his love and commitment to her. He tells the investigators about the call that he had had with Julie just minutes before he walked into the forest with Tess, and how she kept pushing him in that call. Two witnesses claim that they heard him say, I will, I will, I promise I will, on the phone that time. So this backs up his story. This is now the story of the last minutes of Tess's life. I will warn you before I go into details so that you can skip ahead if you don't want to hear it. But this is how John described it to the police. They met up in the woods and started walking around while they were talking. They talked about the kiss and how he asked her not to tell anyone about it because he wanted to tell Julie himself instead of rumors informing her about the kiss. Tess then sits down on a large rock. According to John, this is because she is so drunk that she has to sit down. And then she says, remember this is all according to him, she says that uh, she had the right to tell anyone she wanted and that she didn't do anything wrong. That he was the one who was in a relationship and he should have thought about that before he kissed her. He says then that he snapped and got really, really, really angry. He picked up a branch from the ground and hit her in the head with it. But the branch was probably rotten because it broke when it hit her. She starts screaming at him. What the fuck are you doing? Are you crazy? I haven't done anything to you. And he replies, yes you have. You have ruined my life. Okay, now we're going into some gruesome details, so skip ahead a minute or two if you don't want to hear this. He then pushes her down and grabs with his hands around her neck and starts to strangle her. She is fighting for her life at this point and he lost his grip around her neck. But now she's on her stomach. He takes his arm and puts it around her neck from behind, and continues to strangle her. And when she stops moving, he turns her over on her back again. He pushes his fist against her throat for a little while, and then he takes another branch and puts it over her throat, holding it with both hands and pushes down on it with all his strength. This branch breaks, and he gets up, and then he... Oh, this is the worst part. He puts his knee, yes, his knee, on her throat, and presses down using his body weight. And then he gets up. But when he gets up to leave, he hears a gurgling sound, and says to the police that he can't really describe what it sounded like and this is a quote I never heard a person die before he wants to make sure that she is dead so he returns to her and he kicks her in the head in the stomach and on her throat several times he says that he kicked her about five or somewhere between five and ten times <music> He then starts running away towards his home. After a few minutes of running, his mother calls him, wondering where he is. He was supposed to be home at midnight. He tells her that he's only ten minutes away, and she's happy with this, and she goes to bed. After talking to his mom, he calls Julie, and he tells her that it's done. She's dead. I did it. But he's really upset on this call, and he is probably realizing what he had done. Julie helps him to calm down a bit. When he comes home, he tries to go to bed. But he's not able to go to sleep. After a little while, his friends start calling him asking if he had seen Tess. And he says no. He is informed that she is missing. He goes up to the living room. And his friends call again and say that they now found Tess and that she is unconscious and that she's being brought to the hospital. He panics and he calls Julie again, telling her that it seems like Tess didn't die after all. And if she survives, she will know who did this to her. Julie tries to calm him down and I guess she succeeds in this. Uh, The two of them planned to meet the first thing in the morning to talk about this. But as you already know, the police came knocking at 6am that morning, so they never got the chance to talk anymore about this. When it comes to Julie and what she is saying during her questioning is more complicated. She never confesses to anything. She keeps claiming that she never was serious when she sent those texts that she never thought that he would really go through with it, and so on. She sticks to this story all through the investigation and all through the trial. But I think you will agree with me after hearing all the texts that went back and forth that this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for her involvement. But being convicted for a conspiracy to commit murder is not so common in Sweden. It's often a hard thing to prove for the court. In 27 years since 1990 only five people have been convicted for conspiracy to commit murder. The trial is held behind locked doors due to the age of the perpetrators. The prosecution has a solid case with a lot of evidence and all the texts and also John's confession. The question is more about if they're going to be able to sentence Julie for the conspiracy. Well, on October 26th, 2009, they are both convicted. John for murder, and Julie for conspiracy to commit murder. They are sentenced to one year and eight months in a closed youth care facility. This means that they are locked up and giving treatment, like therapy and so on, during this time. I know that most of my American listeners think this is way too lenient. But no one under the age of 18 is ever put in prison in Sweden. Most of the time, when a person under 20 years of age commits a crime, they're gonna be sent to a youth care facility to serve their sentence and the maximum time you can receive when you are under 18 are four years. Kids and teenagers are not completely mentally developed. They cannot always comprehend the results of their actions. This is why there is a thing called juvenile court. You cannot treat a teenager in the same way as an adult. You often hear about people being tried as an adult due to the nature of the crime. I think this is so wrong. And it also goes against UN's Constitution for Children's Rights. In Article 37 of UN's Constitution for Children's Rights, it's said, States parties shall ensure that a. No child should be subjected to torture or other cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment or punishment. Neither capital punishment nor life imprisonment without possibility of release shall be imposed to offenses committed by persons below eighteen years of age. b. No child should be deprived of his or her liberty, unlawfully or arbitrarily. The arrest, detention or imprisonment of a child shall be in conformity with the law and shall be used only as a measure of last resort and for the shortest appropriate period of time. In a lot of the true crime podcasts that I listen to from the U.S., There is a lot of focus on justice. Justice for the victim, justice for the victim's family, and so on. I agree with that. Justice shall be served. But we might have different opinions on what is justice and what is not. Some people should definitely be locked up for life. Like the perpetrator in episode 2, the one who killed Pernilla and Engla. He should never be able to get out, if you ask me. But in this case, we have two kids who just turned 16. They have their whole lives in front of them. And I think the risk that they reoffend is small. And yes, I know. Tess also had her whole life in front of her, and she didn't get to live it because of these two. But locking them up forever is not going to bring her back to life. And would Tess's family be happier if John and Julie were sentenced to life in prison? I don't think so. When you have to go through something like this, you of course are going to be angry. You are going to be hating the person or persons who did this to your loved one. And that's fine. That's exactly what you should do and what you should feel. But when a few years have passed, and you keep hating and keep being angry, the only person who this affects is yourself. At some point, you have to stop hating. That isn't at all the same thing as accepting or not caring. You just have to stop hating, because hate destroys people. In episode 2, during trial, Pernilla's younger sister spoke directly to the murderer, and she said this, You are a disgusting excuse of a human being. But when this trial is over, I'm not going to spend even one of my thoughts on you and what you have done. This to me is exactly what I'm trying to say. Don't let the perpetrator own the rest of your life, by going around hating them. Okay, sorry for getting a bit deep there. That's all for this episode. I don't usually share my thoughts and views, but I felt I had to do it in this case. What do you think about children being tried as adults? And about our more lenient sentencing here in Sweden? I love to discuss this with you, and that doesn't mean that you have to have the same opinion as I do. It's not interesting to discuss with a person that have the same thoughts as you do. I'm brought up here in Sweden, and my thoughts on this are of course affected by the way things work here in Sweden but please let me know what you think I started this Facebook group for this purpose just ask to be added and I will add you and if you have teenage kids talk to them about this case if you don't want them to listen to this podcast at least tell them about this case we might have something to learn from it if you want to reach me, you can do so at truecrimesweden at gmail.com or on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. My handle is truecrimesweden everywhere. See you next time. Goodbye. Hey då!